Well, we are ready to dive in today to study God's Word, and as we get ready to do that, uh, I just, I want to say, as I was getting ready to come up in our amazing time of worship this morning, I don't know about you, my voice is kind of uh, sore because I was just singing my face off for Jesus uh, this morning, and, uh, but I was, I was literally thinking as I was walking up here about how many people I know who are going through deep seasons of sorrow right now and grieving, and I just want to stop as we get ready to go into uh, God's Word to, uh, to pray for those of you who t- today have come in with a heavy, heavy burden, and if, let's join together. Father, Lord, for some of us as we are, are anticipating a great spring season, the changing of the seasons, the sun coming out and the temperatures getting warmer and... Easter right around the corner and all these wonderful things. For some, this is a great season of joy and expectation. But Lord, I know for others right now, this is a season of grieving, perhaps because of some hardship or the loss of a loved one. And Lord, we pray for those who are heavy-hearted today with the promise and the reminder that Jesus says we do not carry this yoke alone, but that his yoke is easy, his burden is light because he joins us in it. That he is there in our suffering, in our pain, in our difficulty, in our sorrow. And so, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to broken hearts today. And then as we study your word, we would be reminded today, encouraged by your great love and the way that you have provided for salvation and eternal life. And for that, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody say, amen. Amen. Okay, the question is, are you ready to study God's word today? Okay, let's get... Now, I I would love for you to get your Bible open, or if you want to do that on your phone, you can do so, Uh, but we are going to have everything on the screen today, but I love it when you go ahead and get used to using the Bible in your own hands as well. And today we are starting a brand new three-week series on theology. Now, throughout each year, we teach through a number of different topics throughout the year. Some of what we teach around here is practical life application about family and relationships and finances and what the Bible says about how to live. And woven throughout all of that, what we teach is at its core evangelistic, meaning uh, designed for lost people to find hope and transformation in Christ through salvation, and some of what we teach is also highly theological. Now, what does that mean? Well, theology is what we believe about God, what we believe about the Bible, and how that shapes our views of the world. And, and, and for many people, and maybe you've been there, I know at times I've been at this point in my life where, where people will many times challenge the Bible with a statement like this, I cannot believe this book because it is so filled with contradictions. 
That you read from one place where an author says one thing and then you read somewhere else and another author seems to say something that contradicts the first. And what we need to understand is that, that much of those ideas that, that people have of contradictions in Scripture have to do with the challenge of understanding how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. Because if you do not understand how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together and how the New Testament is the fulfillment of the promise and what began in the Old Testament, then, then you will begin to see that they don't look like the same book. But you have to see how they fit together. And we're going to look at a little bit of that today by very specifically looking at a challenge or an apparent contradiction that is found within the New Testament itself. And so we're going to start today in James chapter 2, and what we are going to look at has huge consequences. This issue is literally the central issue of Christianity. The debate that we are going to look at today is over the question of how a person is saved. How do you get to heaven? How do you get right with God? And folks, here's why this is so important. Because if we don't get this one right, if we don't get this question figured out, then none of the rest of the stuff matters because the topic of this series is literally a matter of life and death. So we begin in James chapter 2, verse 14, where James asks a question. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? That's the question that we're looking at in this series. James asks, is it possible to have faith that does not then evidence itself in doing good works, becoming a better person, making a difference in the world, can that kind of faith, if it is not accompanied by deeds, actually save you? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by what? If it is not accompanied by action, that faith is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And next week, we're going to come back to that line because that's an interesting one. We're going to look at what this is talking about when it refers to demons and what the demons believe. We'll get back to that next week. Verse 20, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And so throughout this passage, James keeps driving home this idea. He says, you can talk all you want about being a Christian, but, but if there is no fruit, if you are not doing good deeds, if you're not doing good works, if it's not evidenced in a good life, then you might not, he says, it is possible that you might not actually be saved. H how you live matters, James says. The choices you make matter, James says that part of your salvation involves doing good works. Now some all of a sudden are like, whoa, like this doesn't sound right. Because we hear grace teaching, grace, grace all over the place. And then we, where do we get that? Well, we get that, this idea after James talks about how faith involves doing works in Romans chapter 3, Paul says something that seems to be the exact opposite. He says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. And so Paul seems to be disagreeing with James because the law in the Old Testament is about what you do. And so Paul says that you are, are justified by faith alone, and it's not about what you do. Check out Galatians, another writing from Paul. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. He says, knowing that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. Your position with God, your forgiveness and salvation have nothing to do with how good you are. It's not about observing the law. It's not about good works. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. But then James said, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Are you seeing a problem? Thanks for coming today. I hope you enjoyed our teaching. Do you feel encouraged? You see, what we find here is what appears to be a big theological divide in the New Testament, where on the one side, Paul says, all you need is faith, faith, and faith alone. And James says, no, no. James says, faith is not enough. You have to be doing good works and living a good life. 
And the reason that this is such a big problem is because this literally gets to the core of the gospel. This is the central question of Christianity. How are we saved? How do we get right with God? And guess what? You are not the first person in history to notice this conflict. In fact, throughout history, there have been four different schools of thought, four different theological perspectives on this question. And we're going to look at all four of those real quickly. The first theological perspective is the liberal view. And when we say liberal, this has nothing to do with politics. We're not talking about the Canadian Liberal Party. This has to do with a liberal view of Scripture, meaning those who think that the Bible is not the inspired, infallible Word of God. And so a liberal theologian might look at this debate and say that Paul is contradicting James, that maybe Paul and James are in disagreement. The second view is what we'll call the Catholic view because the Catholic Church throughout history has, has believed that scriptural interpretation can continue to develop. And, uh, and so it is possible that, that Paul says all you need is faith and then James is clarifying and adding to that thought that you also have to do good works. And so the Catholic Church has a list of good deeds that are a necessary part of your salvation. You have to go to Mass. You have to take communion, the Eucharist. You have to confess to a priest. You have to do good works of charity. And if you don't do good enough, then you have to go to purgatory in order to get prepared for heaven after you die. So Catholics might say that James could be adding to Paul. Number three, there is the antinomian view. That's a hard one to say uh, because it comes from two Greek words. And this is actually becoming more and more popular today, and you'll find out why. Because antinomian comes from two Greek words that mean no law or apart from the law, anti-law. And the essence of it comes from Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 to 25. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. And so antinomianism looks at this and says, look, we're all under grace, grace, grace all over the place. And so because as long as you have faith in Jesus, you can do whatever you want, you can live however you want, you can sin however you want because it is all under grace. But Paul actually speaks about that, the very person who wrote this. So we know that that cannot be the case either. And so number four is what we're going to call the harmonic view. And this is what I believe and what most Christians in the world today believe, that Paul and James are actually speaking in harmony, that Paul and James are actually in agreement. And so how can this be? How can we bring these, these together? It starts to make sense when you realize that Paul and James are not necessarily 
talking about the same law. And when you begin to understand this, all of a sudden, so much of the New Testament starts to come into focus. And so here is how we harmonize Paul with James. The old law is fulfilled by Jesus, and now there is a new law. Now, so when, when Paul talks about the law, and when James talks about doing good works, they're not necessarily talking about the same thing, the same law. So the Old Testament law that Paul was talking about from the Old Testament was about earning your way to God, earning your salvation. You had to make animal sacrifice at the temple every year. Don't eat pork. Don't do this. Don't do that. But Jesus, Jesus, he says, has fulfilled that old law for us. When he came to die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, he took the punishment that we deserve, and he fulfilled the requirements of the old law for us. And now all of our salvation, is found, all of our righteousness is found in him, not by our goodness, but by his goodness and what he has done. That's how the old law was fulfilled. And guess what? That's good news. That's good news. But now what is this new law that we're talking about? Well, in order to start to talk about this new law, first of all, I have to make a confession about something. I have to apologize to you. We're going to go back to the book of Ephesians in the very passage that we looked at just a few minutes ago. But the confession that I have to make is that when we looked at what Paul said in Ephesians, that we are saved by faith and not by works, that I did something naughty. I did something that you're not supposed to do, and yet something that many times we as Christians are guilty of doing all the time. I took the verse out of context. Okay? What happens is, so often we take a little verse here that says something that we like, and then we'll take another verse over here that seems to be saying the same thing, and we pull them out of their context, and we can make them say things that they were never intended to say. And that is why so often there are so many controversies and confusions and disagreements among Christians when it comes to theology. And so whenever you start to get confused about what a particular verse of Scripture says, what you need to do is go back and read the whole chapter. In fact, read the whole letter, maybe, of Ephesians. And then go back and read the whole New Testament in order to get its context. Because to interpret any individual verse or passage of Scripture, you have to see it in light of the whole story. And so let's go back and look again at what we read. Paul uh, says in Ephesians 2, and we read verse 8 and 9, but we chopped off the end, verse 10. Let's read verse 8 and 9 again. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's what we read. 
But here's where we stopped and what we missed. In the very next line, Paul says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul says, yes, 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 there is a connection between faith and works, that we are saved by faith and we are saved to then do good works. We are not saved by our works, we are saved to do good works. And that's a huge difference. And so, if the old law has been fulfilled, then what is this new law? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here it is. John explains in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 through 21, we love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Now, a command is a law, right? So he's about to give us a new, bring forth a a command, a law. Jesus says, I have given you, he has given us this command, whoever loves God. God must also love his brother. This is the new law. The new law is love. And the only way to understand faith and works in the life of a Christian is when you see it through the law of of love. Now next week we're going to come back and we're going to look at this. We're going to put the pieces back together and I can't wait. It's going to be so good next week because you cannot understand the New Testament. None of this stuff makes any sense if you don't understand that the old law that Paul was talking about from the Old Testament was fulfilled by Jesus and now there is a new law that has been brought to the fore front in its place and according to James and Peter and John and Paul and the New Testament writers and even Jesus himself the new law is love and you're like Joel I'm not convinced where does Jesus say such a thing I'm glad you asked because one time in the book of Matthew chapter 22 Someone came and asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest law of the Old Testament? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law. A little bit of the law? No. All the law. And the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus says this is the essence of what God has called us to as followers 
of Jesus Christ. And I know love because I have seen it in the flesh. My mother passed away two years ago. She died in December of 2016. And my parents had been married for almost 60 years. Uh, And for 60 years, she took care of my father. Uh, She did most everything for him until the last year or two when Alzheimer's showed up. And Alzheimer's came over my mother's mind like a cloud. And she was terrified as she saw her mind getting weaker and weaker. And during that season, as she could not help herself, I had the wonderful privilege of seeing my father serve my mother. He bathed her. Every day he clothed her. He fed her. And it was about all he could take. There would be times that we would be talking on the phone and he would just break down in tears. Because mentally and cognitively, she needed help with just about everything. It was so hard, and yet he served her faithfully, doing good works out of love. And then all of a sudden, in, in late November, uh, she got an infection, and the entire situation became very, very serious, and she stopped eating and palliative care was called in. And for three weeks, my father sat at her bedside and hardly ever left her. And sometimes I would walk in the room and he was holding back tears. But there was one particular night that God gave us as a miraculous gift. For the most part, we had lost my mother. She was unable to communicate Uh, she was just breathing, very little response. But in the week before she died, there was one night where all of us as a family were able to come together in the room and be there by her bedside. We're all crowded around this little room at my sister's house. The hospital bed is there. There are grandchildren and all of her kids and my father. And we started singing songs and laughing and sharing stories together. And and it seemed like there was just a little bit of response from my mother. And so I started asking her questions. I was the one standing right by her side holding her hand. And I started asking her questions. And and she started to respond. (laughs) And all of a sudden, everybody in the room focused their attention in. And for two hours, the Alzheimer's lifted and we got my mother back. It was an amazing miracle. It was so beautiful. And so she would talk about her childhood. We would ask questions about when they got married and 
And, and we started to sing songs, and she sang. She was an amazing musician. She sang in perfect alto harmony as we sang the old songs of the church. But during that two-hour period that was a gift from our wonderful and gracious God, I'll never forget a moment when my father got out of the chair and he walked over to the bedside and he said, Anne, her name was Anne, Anne, and she said, yes, and he said, can I steal a kiss? And my mother, with her quick wit, said, you can have as many as you want. And listen, that is love. Love is not what this world says when it defines love by sex and romance. Love is commitment. Love is sacrifice. Love is faithfulness. And so why do we serve God? Why do we do good works? In fact, we're moving into a season of good works as a church where for the month of April and May as the sun has come out and the temperatures start to warm up and people start climbing out of hibernation, that we are going to call uh, April and May serve season. And we're going to get out on the streets just like we did last year, but expanding the focus and along with our small groups, getting out on the streets, sharing the love of Jesus with people in need, putting feet on our faith, being Jesus with skin on to our city, to people who do not know him. And so you will have countless opportunities available to you in April and May as we go out and serve our community together, doing good works, not for our salvation, but because of our salvation, because of what He has done for us, because of love, and because He first loved us. It's not to earn His love, it's in response to His love. And so today, we are going to join together in communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And we invite the ushers to come forward as we get ready to sing a song together and distribute the communion elements. And so they're going to come down, and in just a minute, we are going to pray and bless the bread and the cup. But before we do that, you need to understand if you're here today and you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've never allowed Him to be your fulfillment of the Old Testament requirements of the law. See, what God requires of you is perfection. And I don't know some of you, maybe as well as others might, but there, I don't care who you are, even if I've never met you, I know this about you, you are not perfect. And yet perfection is what is required to enter into the presence of a holy God. That is the problem. But thanks be to God for His glorious solution to our problem.
in that Jesus died in our place to take the punishment that we deserve. And so when we receive the communion, the bread is the reminder of his body that was broken for us. The cup is the representation of his blood that was poured out for us on the cross. He died in our place so that we can be forgiven and go free and receive this gift of eternal life. And if you have never done that, today could be your day. And so as we pray together, would you surrender yourself to him and experience his love today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, we thank you for what Jesus did for us. And for anyone here today who has never given themselves to you, Father, there are some people here who want to talk to you today. And right now, they want to tell you. And so you go ahead and do it right now in your heart. Tell him, I believe that Jesus died for me. Tell him right now in your heart, say, I confess my sin. I confess my selfishness. I confess my lack of obedience. And I come to you today to receive your forgiveness. And now, right now, tell your heavenly Father, I promise to live for you. I promise to start to get into your word, this ancient book of truth that will guide me in the paths of righteousness. And I prepare to receive this sacrament together with my new family, the church. And we pray your blessing upon these elements that your grace would be administered to our hearts as we worship you. In Jesus' name. So hold on to the cup. Hold on to the bread. And after everybody has it in hand and the ushers are all done, we will come back together in a few minutes and receive those elements together.